Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open your Bibles today to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let me give you a little trivia this morning as we get started, and don't be afraid just to call out the answer. I want, I'm going to say a quote, and you're going to tell me who said it. Great for all of our teachers, our history teachers, and so on. Here's the quote. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Who said it? Oh, a very bold Abe Lincoln in the back. And he did say it. But he was quoting the Lord Jesus. <laughs> when the Lord Jesus told the Pharisees, You think that I do these miracles by the power of Satan? Jesus said, that makes no sense. If I was of Satan, casting out Satan, that would be a house divided against itself, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. So Abe Lincoln took that quote, applied it to the American Civil War, and rightly so. A house, a family, a church, a denomination, a movement, an organization, if turned against themselves will implode, and it will kill anyone and everyone related to it. Any group, denomination, and movement that turns against itself will die. It's part of the safeguards we see in 1 Timothy that Paul puts on leadership, that Paul puts on the church. He wants to root out false teaching so there won't be division on truth. He wants men and women to understand their rightful places in the home and in the church so there's no division there. He wants leadership to be qualified and people to understand what those qualifications are. He wants the family to act as a family. And last week as we came to the household of God, the church of God, the family of God, we talked about widows caring for those in need. This week we go back to look at leadership, leadership in this household, this family of God. And Paul wants to remind us this week that when a church turns against her leadership or when the leadership turns against the church, there is certain death there. There simply is no way to have a healthy flock with a shepherd who kills his sheep. There's no way to have a healthy flock when you have sheep that want to stampede their shepherd. But we see this so often in churches, don't we? Pastors, leaders turn inward. They become selfish, arrogant, greedy, full of themselves. And they turn against their own flock and begin to devour them. We see the other two churches that are angered by change. A decision that has been made. A direction that the church is going. The personalities of the pastors. The church turns against their shepherds and they kill them. Maybe not physically, though I'm sure that's happened. Don't let that happen. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Either way, the result is death. And either way, it hurts the church, 
It hurts the witness of the church. It hurts the reputation of the church. And it hurts the witness of the gospel. And Paul warns us against this here this morning. This morning we're going to talk about elders, pastors, how to honor them, how to protect them, but also how to deal with sin, unrepentant sin, whether it's elders or anyone else in the church. We're going to talk about dealing with unrepentant sin, all for the sake of truth and the purity of Christ's church. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them into judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Number one today... Protect your elders. Those first two verses, first three verses, 17, 18, 19, protect your elders. We've already talked back in chapter 3 about the qualifications for godly elders. So let's come into today's conversation with that already in mind. Not just any pastors, not just anyone who calls themselves elders, but those who have been qualified according to Scripture and those who are serving well. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to regard our preachers and our pastors and our teachers as gifts from God. In fact, when Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4, he says it this way. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And Paul says he gives us these for the upbuilding of the saints, the upbuilding of the church. So often when we think about spiritual gifts, we talked about some on Wednesday night a couple months ago, tongues, prophecy, the biggies, you know, that get all the conversation and the talking points. But the Bible says these are spiritual gifts too. Your elders, your pastors, your teachers. And Paul says, honor them as such. Hebrews 13, 17 says to submit to and to obey your leaders for they are keeping watch over your very souls. The church is called to love, to respect, and to protect her leadership. And Paul mentions specifically two fronts here in our passage today. Number one is finances, and number two is reputation. The church is to support their leaders financially, and they are to respect and defend their leaders' reputation. And remember, once again, before we get into this, this is not a blanket statement for anybody who would say, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor. Those who are qualified, according to Paul's own words in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the book of Titus. Even now, Paul qualifies again, doesn't he? Look at verse 17. Elders who rule well. Those who rule and teach and preach, not as a matter of excellence like their talent or speaking ability, but those who rule with wisdom, with integrity, who teach the truth, 
no matter how well they may do it. Let them rule well. And if they rule well, Paul says, let them be considered worthy of double honor. Who determines what ruling well is? Do the pastors, we get to decide what our criteria is for ruling well, our own qualifications? Do churches decide that? Does the church staff or councils or committees get together and decide this is what a pastor looks like? This is what it means for them to do their job well? No. God gives the qualifications for pastors. God gives the pastors their marching orders. God gives the pastors their commission. Again, you can read it in chapter 3. You can go on and read it as we did two weeks ago with Brother Matt, or three weeks ago when he preached in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Those who preach the truth, those who lead by example, you are to consider them qualified elders. And if you see such an elder, you see such a pastor who is ruling well and teaching the truth, give them the honor and the respect and the reverence they deserve. And we might see that they are worthy of double honor and think it means simply respect and reverence. And that's true. But this word honor that Paul uses is the same word he used back in verse 3. When he talks about honoring the widows. And when he said honor the widows, what did he mean except to support them in their time of need financially? And so churches are to come alongside their pastors and their elders, their teaching and preaching elders, and to support them, honor them financially. And Paul goes a step further in verse 17 to say they are worthy of double honor. And we know he's specifically talking about those who preach and teach because he says so, especially those who labor, love that word, labor in preaching and teaching. This is rightly identified as labor, not as a woman gives birth you know, in labor, though sometimes, I'm not going to say that, Ser- sermon prep can be that way sometimes in a, in a purely spiritual, non-physical way, ladies. Uh, sermon can be that way. But he means working, laboring as one labors in the field or one sows the seed and reaps the harvest. That is the labor of preaching and teaching the word, studying, reading, interpreting, preparing. All of that is part of that burden that the author of Hebrews, when it says he's keeping watch over your souls, that's all included in that labor of preaching and teaching. When I, as your pastor, or Zane as a pastor, Matt as your pastor, have to sit and think, is this my opinion or is this the word of God? When we're going to preach or teach to our students or to our choir or to our congregation, we have those opportunities. We have to separate what I want to say, my opinion, my thoughts, my just fun little imagination from what the scripture says. As we study and we read what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15 is rightly dividing the word of truth. What Paul said in Acts 20 verse 27 that we should deliver the whole counsel of God. This is labor with eternal consequences. A weighty, heavy burden to bear. I heard a preacher, it might have been Adrian Rogers, I don't know. It might be someone else. It wasn't original to me though. I heard a preacher say it like this once. The preaching and teaching of the word, pastoring, is a work like no other. But... It is work as much as any other. 
And so when you see someone proclaiming the word of God, preaching the word of God, you understand that is a calling, that is a burden, unlike anything else in the world. But it is a job and a career and work as much as anything else in the world. And as such, Paul gives us some common sense statements here in verse 18. Labor should be compensated. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. As God lays out these laws for his people, how they're to conduct themselves in life, in their businesses. One of the things he says to the farmers that have oxen specifically, as the oxen tread out the grain, mushing it and crushing it to be of use to humans, let them eat what's left over. Don't put a muzzle on their face so as to restrict them from eating what they're actually doing. And the illustration is clear, isn't it? Someone who is laboring for you, who is working for you in this way, let them have some of the fruits of their labor. John Calvin said it this way, Though the Lord commands consideration for the oxen, he does so not for the sake of the oxen, but rather out of regard for men, for whose benefit even the very oxen were created. Therefore, that humane treatment of oxen ought to be an incentive moving us to treat each other with consideration and fairness. So as we as a church contemplate paying our staff, paying our pastors, part-time, full-time, everywhere in between, as you and your business and you and your life contemplate compensating people and paying them what they owe, think about that. If God cares enough for the oxen in his holy law to provide for them, how much more ought we to consider one another worthy of honor in what we do? especially for those who preach and teach the word of God. Let the men enjoy the fruits of their labor, including pastors. Now, Paul quotes Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 7 here. Now, this is what's so interesting about this. Paul says, Scripture says, and he goes on to quote Deuteronomy, which everyone would have said, oh, yes, that's Scripture. But then he quotes the very words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, telling us something. Paul regarded that Gospel, Paul regarded those words as Scripture, and the early church did too. And he quotes the Scripture as Jesus is sending out the 72 to preach. And you remember, he says, go, preach, and he says, if they offer you food or drink or money, Jesus tells them, receive it. Don't, as an apostle, as someone who is sent out to preach the gospel, don't go into these homes and towns and people want to bless you and give you things financially or materially. And in your false humility, you say, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus says, receive it. A laborer is due his wages. The wrong question we sometimes ask as churches, and I've been in these committee meetings before, not here, I always have to say that, not here, but somewhere else, is the wrong question, how little can we pay? How little can we get by with to pay that pastor or that youth guy or that music guy or that secretary or that custodian? How little can we pay? When the right question should be, 
especially for your pastors, how much can we pay responsibly? Now, there's a difference, isn't there? When you're weighing out missions and the needs of the church and the bills and everything else we have to do, the right question is, what can we still bless our pastors and our ministers and our staff with? Now, let me just take a moment to say, I've been in a few churches, and I can tell you, as I always do, without any hesitation, that this church is the healthiest, most loving and unified church I've been a part of. And that goes to the taking care of our pastors and our staff. This is the most generous, open-handed church that I've been a part of. Okay, so as we come through the reading of Scripture, this is why we preach through books. No pastor ever wants to preach this passage. And if they do want to preach this passage, you better watch out for them. But no pastor ever wants to preach this. But here we are. <laughs> here we are. We come to it. Uh, who else is going to preach it except one of your pastors? So this is what it is. But this is because it's God's word. It's what he tells us. And I want to tell you as a church, you do this well. Okay, this is not a reprimand or a correction. You do this well. But Paul says, support your pastors financially. Then the other leg has to come down, doesn't it? The other foot comes down. Not only support them financially, but defend their reputation. Look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15. The law tells us that you just can't have someone accuse someone and say, okay, you're guilty, go to jail, or you know, go get stoned or whatever. You can't just do that. You need two witnesses. You need three witnesses. There, there must be a case that is present. Anyone can hurl out an unfounded accusation. Really, anyone at any time that could destroy you, your family, your job, your reputation. Now think about that as a youth pastor, or music pastor, or missionary, or Sunday school teacher, or a deacon, or a lead preaching pastor. The world loves that stuff. The world loves it. Satan loves it. He loves for people to propagate lies to tear down each other, especially within the church, especially when it's a pastor. Oh, Satan loves a good church scandal. He loves a good televangelist going down in flames for embezzlement or an affair or some other crime or sin. Satan loves that when a pastor falls morally, when they're accused. How does Jesus tell us to deal with sin or an offense in the church? To, to just throw out unfounded accusations with no evidence and no witnesses? Does he say that? No. Matthew 18, 16, you go one-on-one. -on -one. If they won't repent, take two or three with you based on this principle. If they still won't repent, you take it to the church. How often churches get this out of order? And they start by skipping step number one. That's the, the first way, the first step you know that someone is not obeying the Bible when it comes to church conflict and church discipline. They skip step number one. You tell them, hey, you need to go talk to that person on your own. I'm not involved in this. <laughs> this is your thing with them. Go talk to them. They say, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to talk to them. They have time to talk to you, but they don't want to actually go talk to the other person who has offended them or who they've offended. 
So they skip step number one. The next way we pervert this order is instead of then going with two or three to that person and talking about it, you don't go to the person, but you still talk to the two or three, and you run your mouth about that person. And step number three in this perverted system is that instead of going to the person one-on-one, and while we're running our mouths about that person with two or three, the whole church, instead of being healed and built up, the whole church is hurt. And you see how Satan likes to twist God's plan, one-on-one, two or three, the whole church. Paul flatly forbids baseless claims and charges, especially against the elders and pastors of the church. And Paul goes as far as to say, when you do this, you are not only breaking God's heart, you are breaking God's law. Protect the reputation of your elders. Here's what I'm not asking you to do. I'm not asking you to put Zane and myself and Matt on pedestals. The higher you lift someone up on a pedestal, the further they have to fall, right? We are not sinless. We are not perfect. We will make bad decisions. We will move in wrong directions. We will do things that you don't agree with, right or wrong. I'm not asking you to put us up on some sinless, godlike pedestal. Far from it. But as you hear complaints, or maybe you have a complaint, as you hear charges, handle them biblically. Handle it biblically. Someone comes and says, I just don't like that pastor's preaching because blank. I don't like what we're doing over here with this program because blank. You say, hey, have you talked to the pastor about that? Have you gone to Zane about that? Have you gone to Matt about that? Why don't you do that first? Or maybe it is outright sin. Especially then, go to that person. Talk. And then carry out the rest of the steps per Jesus and per Paul here. Do not be a tool that Satan uses to attack the body, even in the church, definitely in public. Lift up your pastors. Speak highly of your pastors. Don't allow lies. If a pastor meets these biblical qualifications that Paul has already laid out for us, you owe them your love, your support, your respect, your generosity, And your honor. And listen, I know I'm saying this today as your pastor, and I'm saying this on behalf of Zane and Matt, but whoever would stand in this pulpit as your pastor, whoever has stood here in this pulpit as your pastor, whoever is leading you, no matter if it's me, Zane, or Matt, whoever, this applies to all of them. Okay, this isn't just about me this morning, this is about your pastor, whoever that may be at any given time. What benefit is it to the church when you do love and support and protect your pastors? When you do take care of your oxen? When you do care for them? What benefit is that to you? Great benefit. On the other hand, what benefit is it to you if it's grumbling and complaining? The author of Hebrews tells us to honor and submit to your leaders They're keeping watch over your souls. And it says, let them do this without grumbling or complaining. Why? Because that would be no benefit to you. Let alone what it does to me or Zane or Matt or whoever the pastor is. That's of no benefit to you. Honor 
respect, love. Support your elders financially and protect your elders' reputation for the good of the church. Number two, deal with sin. Okay, got that part out of the way, but now it's this. This is not a blanket statement to cover up sin. This is not a church being told when your pastor falls into a serious moral failing to ignore it and cover it up because you don't want bad things to happen. You don't want the negative press. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, he goes on to clarify, as for those who do persist in sin, elders or otherwise, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Paul does want to limit baseless, unfounded charges. He does not want to cover up real sin. And I just want to tell you that these principles and these verses have been perverted in our own Southern Baptist Convention recently with the huge sex abuse scandal that has come to light in recent years that was investigated by our own convention the last two years and now is under investigation by our actual Department of Justice for the United States. That some pastors and some leaders and some denominational executives have actually used these principles to say that they should not face outside questioning. This is a church matter. We keep it in the church. One on one, two or three, and the rest. Let me just say that's a flat out abuse of those scriptures. It's a flat out abuse of these principles. We have laws in the United States. And one of those laws is that if someone tells you they are being sexually, physically abused, it is the law for you as the pastor, leader, teacher, whatever it is, to go to law enforcement. You are not disobeying scripture. You are not violating Jesus' commands to go to the law first. Yes, go on to deal with it as a church, according to Jesus, one, two, three, but you also must obey the laws. Okay? And that's what's gotten our convention and many churches into the serious trouble they're in right now is because they failed to obey those laws. We take Jesus' word seriously. We take our own laws seriously. And that's for the protection of the church. Paul has no interest in covering up real sin. He has no interest in turning a blind eye to real sin. He says, rebuke them. Expose their guilt. Expose their sin. Do so publicly in the presence of all. Now, this is not to contradict verse 19. You've already gone through those steps one-on-one. They refuse to repent. Take two or three with you. They refuse to repent. And now we're on step number three. Just as Jesus said, take it before the church. And Paul says, if they persist in sin... That is, they keep on going, doing the same thing, having been confronted, having been charged, and they keep on going. Pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, lay people, no matter who it is. Confront them and rebuke them. Paul says at the end of verse 20, so that the rest may stand in fear. This flies in the face of much of the conventional wisdom in the modern church. Modern church, no matter what brand or denomination, love, inclusion, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and all of those should be there. 
when understood biblically. And real, listen, real biblical love does not ignore sin. Real biblical love deals with sin with honesty and also with grace. Why? So that the fear of God might be exalted in the church. God was concerned about his name and his glory in the Old Testament. He's nonetheless concerned about it today in the church. When Ananias and Sapphira sinned against the Holy Spirit by lying to him and lying to the church in Acts 5, there at the very birth of the church, God killed them. Right there in the presence of the apostles, they were buried out in front of everybody. And the the New Testament, the Acts, tells us some interesting things. Number one, everyone was afraid and no one dared join them. But on the other hand, the church continued to grow. God was seen as holy and righteous and one who is to be feared. And because of that, listen, against all the conventional wisdom in the modern church, when God is exalted as holy and righteous and one who is to be feared, when that happens, he will grow his church. Paul ensures that such discipline and such rebuke is not based on favoritism or partiality. Look at verses 21 and 22. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. There's some serious charges, isn't it? He's calling on the the power and the presence of God and of Christ and even the angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Doing nothing from partiality. Paul says favoritism partiality, playing favorites with people is the furthest thing from justice in the world. It's the farthest thing from holiness in the church. He invokes the very presence and name of God and Christ and the angels to say, do not engage in this kind of partiality. Do not prejudge. That's dishonest. And when you think about it, listen, this is so often in politics and in the church we fall into this the sin of pragmatism. Whatever gets the outcome we want, we're willing to do it, even if it's lying about people. We play favorites. We prosecute some crimes and not others to get the outcome we want. And then we call it justice when it's the furthest thing from justice. And Paul says when you engage in this kind of stuff in the church, playing favorites either by elevating some unqualified or by ignoring the sin of some or by punishing the sin of some more than others, Paul says it's not justice or holiness at all. You're perverting Christ's plan and God's will for his church. This negates the holiness in the church when you play favorites and you show partiality. It puts a whole concept of church discipline in the dumpster. We're pretending to practice church discipline while actually usurping God's authority and building our little kingdom on flesh. Verse 22, Paul says something very similar to this. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. 
So, so just as much as we're not supposed to play favorites with church discipline and dealing with sin, whether it's a member, a deacon, teacher, or a pastor even, deal with the sin publicly and openly that all may stand in fear. Don't play favorites, especially, Paul says, for those set aside for ministry. That's what he means when he says, do not be quick in the laying on of hands. Someone says, I want to be a pastor. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a deacon. Don't be so quick to say, okay, lay hands, ordain, set aside. You're good to go. The church is no place for the online ordination service, okay? Well, you can go get your, your REV, your reverend degree, in like 30 seconds flat so you can perform a marriage. The church is no place for that. There's qualifications. There's testing. There's the recognition of gifts and passions and callings that has to go into that. And Paul says, do not do that quickly. For when you do it quickly, when you do it quickly, Paul says, you take part in the sins of others. That's not to say that you sin by proxy. You know, you ordain someone very quickly who, who came to faith, made a profession. Okay, we're going to make you a preacher, a pastor, but they're living in unrepentant sin in the world. Not that you become guilty of those sins, but you are enabling that sin. You, in essence, as a church, as pastors, are giving your blessing for that person to operate even with that sin in their lives. So Paul says, avoid that. Avoid contaminating yourself in that way. Avoid contaminating your church that way. Paul says at the end of that verse, in all purity, keep yourself pure. When we come to verse 23, anything we say here would be pure speculation. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, sometimes you just look at Scripture and you take a step back and you think, why did God, by his Holy Spirit, inspire Paul to say that here in this inspired letter that is Scripture why not just a little addendum on the side? It's right here in the text of Scripture, this personal note for Timothy. Seems that Timothy might have been sick. He might have suffered some sort of frequent digestive thing. Dare I say, ulcers as a pastor. I don't know what he was dealing with. Not unheard of in ministry. It reveals Paul's compassion and genuine care for his son in the ministry, as he called Timothy. It also reminds us of the burden of ministry and the weight that pastors carry. Again, not just me, any pastor, Zane, Matt. We, we try to lead our families, try to lead our church, try to lead our individual ministries, try to prepare for everything and anything from preaching the word to boilers going out to air conditioners going out and everything in between. The people that come in and want a free hotel room for the night or whatever it is. There's a burden, there's a weight there. You who've served in ministry know this. When I read this little verse, I often think of the Cajun chef. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Justin, I forgot his last name. Red suspenders, blue shirt. He came on TV in the 80s, 90s, cooked Cajun food all the time. What was his little catchphrase? Everybody knows it, right? No, you don't, just me. A little more wine, right? A little more wine. Everything you cook, a little more wine. I don't know that Paul said it that way, but, but he might have said it that way to Timothy. It's not beyond the pale to think that Paul, talking to another pastor, said, you know what will really do you some good sometime? 
maybe a little more wine. So Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine with your water for the sake of your stomach. Whatever that means, we see Paul's care, Paul's compassion. We see the weight and the burden that Timothy carried for his church. All of this to say that while discipline is a bad word in our society, while discipline has become a bad word in many churches, when practiced biblically, we see love, support, and grace. And we ask the question, should we just leave sin alone? The answer is no, because that's not loving at all. With yourself, with your family, with your church body, with your leaders, with your deacons, with your pastors, deal with sin. Lastly, number three, because truth can't hide. The reason we deal with sin is because payday is coming. Judgment is coming. It's central to the Christian faith. I read it this morning to the the baptism candidates when I asked them part of the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead? And it's a sobering thought to think that we will stand before the judge. And as Paul says, nothing will be hidden. Think about this for pastors according to James 3 verse 1. He says, I don't think many of you want to be teachers or preachers. Why? Because they're going to be held to a higher standard of judgment. And we're prone to favoritism. We're prone to partiality. That's why Paul had to say, don't do it. But not God. With God, there is no partiality. There is no favoritism. He will judge faithfully. And every single one of us, from the member to the deacon to the teacher to the pastor, every single one of us will face God in judgment. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed to man once to die, and then judgment. And Paul says in verse 24, the sins of some are conspicuous, going before them in judgment. They're obvious. They're visible. They're out there for everyone to see. And Paul says it's like the procession into the courtroom. It's as if the person is coming into the courtroom, but before they even get there, here comes all the evidence, box after box after box after box, going before them, before the judge, to condemn them in their guilt. He says, though others think their sins are hidden, those will be revealed. Thought about going through security at the airport and how you're always, you know, slightly nervous that there's a gun that you don't own in your backpack or a water bottle that's got just an ounce too much water and they're going to take you into the, the other search room and do things to you. You don't know what's going to go on when you go through the airport and you're trying to find all the food and all the water and make sure everything meets the code. How much do we fear that time of searching And if that's how we treat earthly authorities like the TSA, how much more ought we to fear the judgment of God from whom nothing will be hidden? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that that which is done in the dark will be proclaimed in the light. That which is said in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. And not only will all sin be made manifest, known and unknown, We are currently laid bare before our God, the judge. What a sobering thought for us. What an encouraging thought to encourage us to deal with sin in our lives and help others with the sin in their own lives. 
Paul ends with good news, though. Not only will the sin be made known, but good works will too. He says, for that which is hidden will not remain hidden. God rewards those who seek and obey him. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. All of our Spark Studios VBS kids will remember this, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Revelation chapter 19 verse 8 says in the new Jerusalem, in that new creation, the bride is adorned with a beautiful robe. And what else is that beautiful robe except the righteous deeds of the saints? A life transformed by Jesus and the gospel is a life that produces the fruit of righteousness and good works. Many of them will be done in secret. Many of them no one will ever know about. But God knows, and God rewards. Jesus said that, didn't he, in Matthew 6, verse 4. You pray in secret, you give in secret. Your heavenly Father knows, and he will reward. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, he said it this way, every vessel that is cast into the ocean of happiness is full. He's talking about heaven. Every vessel that is cast into that ocean of happiness, heaven, is full. Though there are some vessels far larger than others. We all will be full and satisfied in heaven. But Edward says it's a matter of the size of the vessel that you bring. Those good works that God will reward. The truth can't hide this morning. No matter the profession you've made, no matter a decision you made for Jesus at some point in the past, your life right now is bearing witness to one of two truths. You are either harboring sin publicly or privately, or you're living in righteousness. So which is true of you today? Are you living in outright unrepentant public sin? Are you harboring some private supposed hidden sin? And then the question to ask yourself, if you consider yourself a believer, is to ask, am I saved? Am I deceived? Or am I just distracted? What does the evidence say today? Maybe God has shed some light on some things today in your life, your anger, your bitterness, frustration, lust, pride. Maybe specifically to today's sermon, it's frustration with me as your pastor, or Matt H., or Zane, or your deacons, or your teachers, or something you're frustrated with. You don't know what's going on. You disagree with something. Maybe, first of all, you should pray harder for me. You should pray harder for Zane, or Matt, or whoever you're upset with. Maybe you've expressed that frustration in an unhelpful way, an unbiblical way. Maybe instead of coming to me or Zane or Matt or whomever with your complaint, your problem, your questions, your concerns, you've gone to others. You've stirred up division and anger or bitterness amongst others. God wants you to get that right today. Maybe today you've seen the importance not only of church discipline, discipline in your own life. The need to fear God more. I want you to do something at least with this today. At least do this. 
commit to pray for and support your church leadership. In times when you agree, in times when you disagree. In times when we make you very happy, in times when we make you very angry. Submit to praying for us, supporting us, lifting us up in love. I want to ask you this morning, unbelievers, if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ for salvation, how do you think you stand before the impartial judge of all the world? How do you think you stand before that judge? You can know forgiveness of your sins and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ today. Believers, how ought you to obey God this week in light of what he's taught us in his word? Let's pray. God, our Father, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy and your grace. And we ask that you would be with us now as we respond in song and in prayer. You'd help us to submit and commit ourselves to you, to love and service for our church, our leaders, that you might be exalted, that you might be lifted up. Help us to examine ourselves today, those hidden sins, those private sins, those secret sins. Help us to come to terms with the fact they won't remain hidden forever and you will expose them here or later. Cause us to turn to Christ again. Cause unbelievers in this room right now to repent Come to faith in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.